morning, everyone. Good to see you all here. So we are going to actually look at Genesis 19 this morning. So we're walking through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in chapter 19 this Sunday. We're going to take a week out for Christmas, and then actually we're going to do a series on discipleship at the beginning of 2019. So we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus. Whenever we're walking through longer books like this, oftentimes we take some planned hiatuses. Is that plural of hiatus? Anyway, um, and so uh, we'll dive back in early next year. But uh, we're here in chapter 19. Last week we looked at 18. 18 and 19 go together. So if you missed chapter 18, you can go online and find that. Um, You'll see how they fit together as a unit. Um, But if you want to turn in your Bible, we will be reading that section here shortly, and you can find it on page 13, so right at the beginning. First book of the Bible, a book full of beginnings, including the beginning of all the mess that we see all around us. And there's certainly a lot of mess here in chapter 19. So before we dive in, I think we're all aware, if you pay attention to the news at all over the past year, that there is a public reckoning going on in America. Not just in America, but certainly in America. So it's happened in the Roman Catholic Church with all of the abuse that had been covered up that's coming to light. Um, not just in this past year, but a lot of it in this past year. Um, The Me Too movement over this past year, Hollywood and the abuses by many powerful leaders being brought to light, corporate America, same thing, a reckoning among powerful people who abused their power, Um, powerful figures in media as well and many of them being toppled from these high positions. So a reckoning has taken place, bringing sexual, sexual abuse and assault um, to light. So there is an outcry rising, and a reckoning has begun to come. Have you ever considered that this could be God responding to the outcry that has gotten so great in America. Some of you might be quick to focus on the potential abuses. Well, we're going to create this environment where men have to walk on eggshells and, you know, reputations can be just completely tarnished in a moment. Okay, fair concern. But shouldn't we be so much more concerned about the real abuse and damage and injustice that has taken place, right? Shouldn't we be more concerned about that? So have you ever considered that this could actually be God responding to the outcry? It's actually happened before, right here in Genesis 19. Now, I have to be honest, we're hitting Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah story, right? I really don't want to preach on Genesis 19. 
but it's probably a good sign that I need to. And you might not want to study Genesis 19 right now, but that might be exactly the reason you need to. I mean, especially at Christmas, come on, Advent season, what are we doing? Can't we consider like a passage that's a little more warm and fuzzy? I think oftentimes we want to look away from wickedness and perversion and the fallout of our fallenness. We oftentimes don't want to face the evil in our world. And maybe to agree, I can, a degree I can understand that. Um, we could probably do with a little less evening news, you know. But oftentimes we don't want to face reality. We want to stick our heads in the sand We oftentimes don't want to face the evil in our own hearts. And I think oftentimes we don't want to consider the judgment of God. But ignorance is not bliss, folks. God insists that we look at these things, that we look reality in the face, ultimately so that we will look to Him for mercy and rescue and even judgment. So the main themes of this chapter are destruction against the wicked that was just, okay? Just destruction. And deliverance for the righteous that was based on intercession and mercy, okay? So two main themes, judgment that was just and deliverance that was mercy. Again, Genesis 18 and 19 go together, so just a really brief little connecting point there. The three visitors came, Abraham's tent. He recognizes that this is a divine visitation. He offers them this humble, lavish hospitality. And then the Lord actually shares with Abraham what he's about to do. So look back at Genesis 18, 20. Really the same page as our passage there on page 13. 1820 says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The point is not that God is ignorant and he needs to go down and see. The point is, is he's going to be very careful This is judicious scrutiny before judgment. 1823, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's got some vested interest in Sodom, right? His nephew is there, Lot. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So those questions, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked and shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, are clearly, decisively answered in chapter 19. Okay, so let's read first through verses 1 to 14. I'm going to make some comments as we go along, take note of some things, particularly things that lead to the destruction, first point, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so here we go. Genesis 19, 1. The two angels 
came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So if he was in the gate, it implies that he was actually a man of standing in the city. The gate was a place even where judgment on matters would take place by the you know, city leaders. So he may have even had a position as a judge. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So he shows some similar hospitality or um, welcome, similar to that of Abraham, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. He knows where he lives. So he's insistent. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Just stop for a second here. Do you think we maybe should note that there's no mention of his wife here? Chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah get in on the hospitality. But if you know the whole chapter... And what happened with Lot's wife, maybe it is interesting that she's not receiving the visitors. Verse 4, before they, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. I mean, this, maybe you can get this, or maybe you... Uh, kind of feel the connotations already, but that language of surrounding the house is just as threatening as it sounds. This is an ugly, ugly scene. And so it begins to answer the question of Abraham, will you sweep the righteous away with the wicked? No. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes. So the visit of God's emissaries here to the city confirms the justice of divine judgment that's coming. And really, it's not so much for God. He already knew, but it certainly is for us, the readers, who sometimes call God's judgment into question. So Lot is the lone righteous man in this city. And righteous, by the way, we're going to see this clearly in coming verses. Righteous does not mean sinlessly perfect, because Lot was far from that. And actually, so was Abraham. It means he was in gracious covenant relationship with God by faith. So verse 5, <clears throat> they called to Lot, these men who've surrounded the house, <clears throat> where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And you know what that euphemism means. So the specific sin here is not just homosexuality or bisexuality, though the Bible makes it clear that these are against God's original design, but also sexual violence and assault. So as Hamilton notes here, Oriental ethics decreed that a host is responsible for the safety of his guests. This was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. If anything happens to his guests while they are under his roof, the host is culpable. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. This is good. This is courageous, right? He's getting in between. He's mediating here. He's trying to protect his guests. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. But then he says this. It's one of the reasons why I don't want to preach on this. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. 
Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Don't you hate that Lot said that? We should. Even if he was bluffing, which is possible, especially given the sexual preferences of the men of Sodom, this is unconscionable, wicked, cowardly. He should have offered himself before he offered his daughters. So I don't want this to be in the Bible. But then again, I don't want this to be in the world either. And I imagine you're with me on that. And sadly, it is so much more than we even know. But the fact that it's recorded in the Bible is not proof that it's condoned by God. In fact, this was, I think, timely and kind of almost like a relief to me emotionally as I'm wrestling with this text and how to preach it this week. Um, so our family does some Advent reading typically every year, and you know we have the Jesse tree and the little you know, ornament things, and you hang it on there. And one of the readings was from Ruth. And in Ruth, the conduct of Boaz is intended to be exemplary, okay, if you're familiar with that story. So, in fact, the book, book of Ruth speaks of Boaz as Ish Gabor Hail, okay, the worthy, excellent man, like Eshet Hail the worthy woman of Proverbs 31. Okay, so there's the worthy woman. We're familiar with that. An excellent wife who can find. But then there's a worthy man in Ruth, and it's Boaz. And here's how this worthy man treats Ruth, a very vulnerable woman. Ruth 2, 8, 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he's generous to her. He could have taken advantage of her. He didn't. And he made sure nobody else did. So he was kind to her repeatedly, protecting and providing for her. That's what God condones. That's what God calls worthy and righteous, worth following, an example to follow, to emulate, not this wretched offer from Lot. So that being said, we we just need to not sweep anything under the rug here. Like, we need to just face this head on. Do you know that the Bible calls Lot righteous? Like, this would be easy if, if Lot, you know, turned into a pill of salt just like his wife did. But the real tension comes if you read the whole Bible, you know, because in 2 Peter, you can turn there if you want, to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and... Again, this is inspired by God. So greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So that's good that he was bothered by what was happening around him. 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So again, righteous does not mean sinlessly perfect in the Bible, okay? But it means in covenant relationship by grace through faith. So Lot was quite a conflicted character, like many of us, okay? And he's not the only one. Remember Noah, righteous, even it says blameless in his generation, And he's rescued with his family, and then what happens? He's drunk and naked in his tent. Like, what? Abraham, the man of faith, pawning his wife off as his sister to save his skin. Sarah, the matriarch of the people of God, offering Abram, his maidservant, Hagar, taking matters in her own hands, and then treating her with contempt once she gets pregnant. Samson, I mean, do I have to, we could could go on with his list, and he's in Hebrews 11. I don't know when he expressed genuine faith for the first time. Maybe it was when he knocked those pillars down. I don't know if it was before that, but anyway, he was a mess of a character. David, man after God's own heart, adulterer and murderer. So all this does not mean that God is morally lax, that it doesn't matter how we live. God is white, hot, holy, and he hates sin. But he is also more loving and merciful than we give him credit for. And it's good news. It's a good thing. There's hope for conflicted hypocrites like Lot and like you and me. I mean, how many of us have done, said, thought things that we are ashamed of or would be ashamed of if they saw the light of day, even after we became Christians. I think we would all answer in the affirmative if we were honest. So we cannot, you know, sweep this under the rug. We've got to see it for what it is. It's ugly. We should be disgusted. But there is comfort here that God responds on the one hand to the outcry of injustice and brings judgment on hardened sinners, but he also mercifully rescues a very imperfect and even hypocritical believer. Verse 9, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. You can see why the outcry arose, right? Lot was scoffed at and scorned for calling their actions wicked. This is no surprise. So will we be. Peter warns us. 1 Peter 4, the nations want to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, 
Brothers and sisters, this is not a surprise probably to us in the day and age in which we live, the culture in which we live. If you hold to a biblical sexual ethic, you will be maligned. We should prepare for that. We should make up our minds ahead of time. We should know what we believe and be able to explain it. This does not mean that we should be caustic or self-righteous when we do. We are all sexual sinners. This also does not mean that when we're talking with someone that doesn't share the same values, that you know, we should communicate with them in a way that you know, if they cleaned up their sexual act, then they could become good Christians. No, people need to come to Jesus, and He does the cleanup work. But it does mean that we must decide if we're going to trust and follow Jesus on this, because it's going to be tested. And if so, if we do hold firm, if we do stand with Jesus, we will be able to be salt preserving a world that is decaying quickly with moral corruption, that we will be able to be light in a dark world of anything goes perversion. But if we are wishy-washy on sexual ethics, we will be easily conformed to this world, and then we will be judged along with it. Back to the narrative. The end of verse 9. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men inside, the angels, the angelic visitors, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So the mob says they're going to deal with Lot worse than with the visitors. They were going to assault Lot. So here he's trying to protect his guests, but his guests needed to intervene to protect him. Verse 11, and they struck, the angelic visitors struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. God doesn't have this hair-trigger temper. This is because of the wickedness of this city. So, but note that language of outcry. Who is crying out? Would it not be the victims? So these visitors weren't the first ones. This was characteristic of this place. This is actually confirmed by the usage of this word elsewhere. You know, in Genesis 4.10, the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me. It's the outcry of the blood of a victim. Or in Exodus 3, the same word is used. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. They were afflicted and oppressed unjustly. They cried out, and the Lord heard, and he delivered them. I know their sufferings, he says, 
and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So in the law, one more example of how this language is used, Moses communicates to the people, Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, same word, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So this is God's response to abuse and the outcry of the victims. Verse 14, so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, okay, so they're not yet married, but they're betrothed, and betrothal was so serious back then that you would have to get divorced to break up a betrothal. So even though they're not married, they're calling these guys sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters up Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting, joking. Let me just remind you of what was said in verse 4. You can look back there. Before the visitors lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So who was most likely, in that mob. The sons-in-law. Verse 15. Not even blindness got their attention because of their blindness, a deeper blindness. Verse 15. As morning dawned... Well, actually, no. Verse 15 is going to be the <laughs> second point. So, destruction. God will destroy the wicked. Judgment is coming and Sodom and Gomorrah, really for the rest of us, looking back on this story, it's an early warning, okay? They're foreshadowing what is to come at the end. In fact, later on in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah becomes like a typical warning. Like, you don't want to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, God will judge you like he did Sodom and, and Gomorrah. A few examples. Isaiah 3.9 for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Or Jesus, when he sent out his disciples to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Matthew 10, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So really sobering word on how serious it, is to hear the, serious it is to hear the gospel and ignore it. Or Jude 1.7, the second and last book of the Bible. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the whole point of this, this account thus far, is that God brings this destruction, but it is just judgment. Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? No. Will the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, he will do right. 
And I don't think we ponder that enough. I don't think we look at the judgment of God in the face enough. We all live on the brink of eternity. In fact, I, it's been helpful for me to think of this recently. I don't do it enough. All the people that you work with and live near and your family members that don't know Jesus, they all live on the brink of eternity and they will face God's judgment apart from the grace that can only be found in Christ. Like Sodom and Gomorrah is a sober warning. If anybody here that's hearing my voice right now is not trusting Jesus as their Savior, then this judgment that fell on these people is an early warning to you. You don't want to face the judgment of God. We all deserve it. But Jesus is a refuge. He rescues us from God's righteous wrath. He took it on himself on the cross in our place so that we could be reconciled to him and forgiven and pardoned and cleansed and brought into covenant relationship with him. We don't think of these things enough. We should think of them more. Don't you think that would help us to be willing to open our mouths and get over our fears when it comes to talking to our neighbors about the gospel? Well, thankfully, this passage is not all about judgment and destruction. It's also about deliverance. So let's look at verses 15 to 29. Second point. God will deliver the righteous. Okay. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. We'll come back to that. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the, the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be spared, saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. So interesting, that city was saved on the account of one, quote-unquote, righteous man. If you remember Abraham's negotiations. But isn't this crazy? I mean, it's kind of shocking. Can you believe that Lot is, you know, negotiating in this moment? What's more shocking, Lot's wheedling negotiations or the Lord's merciful concession. Derek Kidner writes, not even brimstone will make a pilgrim of Lot. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. Part of the whole draw of Sodom was that it was a city and there was security there, as opposed to living in a tent like his uncle, less stable, less comfortable, and so what does Lot say? Oh, I don't want to go live up in the hills. How about this little city? It'd be, it's like a security blanket almost. Verse 22, Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. 
The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord. This is not a mere natural disaster, even if it was a result of, of an earthquake and the bitumen pits and, you know, like that catching fire. And it's like there's, you can talk to scientists, it's possible that it could have happened that way. But even if it did, it was God doing it at that moment for this reason. Fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This is just scorched earth left behind. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So God warned our first parents, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate, they died. The angel warned Lot and his wife, don't look back or you'll be swept away. She looked back, and she was. So at this point now, the narrative flashes back to Abraham, tying Lot's rescue to Abraham's intercession. Look at verses 27 to 29. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Earthly judgment that's a foreshadowing of final judgment. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. There were obviously not ten righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God rescued Lot anyway. Do you see how merciful he is? So Abraham, you know, is like negotiating with God 50, 45, all the way down to 10. Okay, there's not even 10. But God still rescued Lot and his family. But it was on account of Abraham's intercession. So God listened to Abraham, mercifully rescuing Lot and his family, but he still had to destroy because he is just. So, God will deliver the righteous. There's deliverance here, incredibly merciful deliverance, including conflicted, hypocritical Christians like Lot. You could say it this way. You can take the people out of Sodom, but it's harder to take the Sodom out of the people. Or Hamilton writes this, one commentator, note Lot's inconsistency. He urges his sons-in-law to flee, but finds it hard to flee himself. He's better at giving directives than receiving them. So it's important to see that this deliverance was based on intercession and mercy. And it's actually the same for all of us. We are only ultimately saved by the mercy of God. <laughs> There's not the people that deserve it and then the rest. None of us do. It's only by mercy. And thankfully, our intercessor is not a flawed patriarch but the perfect Son of God. We are saved by mercy and intercession. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the mediator between God and man. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession 
for them, which is wonderful, isn't it, given our proneness to wander? So Lot was delivered, but his lingering, I mean, it kind of strikes us as crazy, and it should. But it should help us see how crazy it is for us to love this world. You know what I'm saying? We're crazy when we do this. And yet, I think we all know we need to hear the warning of 1 John 2.15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if we're honest, we are all familiar with loving our sin and needing the Lord to pry it out of our hands. Our resistance to deliverance is insane. (laughs) So Lot's lingering is a lesson to us. We see it in him. It's really easy to see, isn't it? That's nuts. But it's harder to see in ourselves. So Lot is a mirror to help us see ourselves, which is also why it's encouraging that God's deliverance was more stubborn than Lot's hesitance. Just like the angels had to grab him and pull him out. So let's learn from this cautionary tale. Okay, Lot's example should lead us to flee sexual immorality and other sin. Not toy with it. Not linger when we ought to run. Let's learn from Lot's life as a cautionary tale. Sadly, the account of his life doesn't end here. It would be probably better if it did. But there is one more ugly episode that we'd rather avoid. It's another reason why I don't really want to preach on this, okay? But let's look at verses 30 to 38. Because actually, I think this is one of the reasons why this is a perfect text for Advent. Crazy enough. All right? Verses 30 to 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar. Maybe he was fearful that Zoar would be next. Or maybe it was because his wife died just outside the edge of the city, or who knows. But he went and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Sad irony. He didn't know that he knew her. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know it when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is a mess. So 
So, so much here to make us sad and angry and disgusted. Wicked plans begat wicked people. The Moabites, the Ammonites, not friendly people in the storyline of the Bible. These are like God's enemies, even though they're relatives, in a sense, to the people of God. So what in the world does all this have to do with Advent? (laughs) Everything. Okay, I want you to turn with me on this one. Matthew 1. Page 807. Genealogy. (laughs) The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Look at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Woo, there's another story. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Where was Ruth from? Louder. Moab. Ruth was from Moab. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You can imagine the gossip. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So you see how Genesis 19 leads to Advent and Christmas. Christmas is not about Hallmark movies and sappy sentiment. If you like Hallmark movies, that's fine. But (laughs) Christmas is as far from being about sentimentality as you can get. It is about the perforation of time and the invasion of the infinite on a rescue mission. It's about a young teenager pregnant out of wedlock It's about a prophecy of a king and murderous infanticide perpetrated by a threatened king. It's about blood and pain and cries in a dirty stable that smelt of manure. Christmas is not sentimental or sanitary or saccharine. It's about a wicked world filled with outcries and a merciful God that doesn't just come down to see if it's all true, but because it's all true. So God so loved this messy world, this disgusting world, and our disgusting hearts and thoughts that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible doesn't whitewash history. It's honest about the absolute mess we've made down here. It's that absolute mess that Jesus 
died to clean up. God so loved this world that he gave his only son. He was willing to have that mess in his family tree to make it really clear what he was coming to do. So the perversion in the cave preserved some of the evil of Sodom, didn't it? But the perversion in the cave in the merciful providence of God led to the rescue of all of us who deserve the judgment of Sodom. But, last point, we've got to leave Sodom behind and trust and follow Jesus, which is why Jesus refers to this account and uses Lot's wife as a warning. That's why Pastor Tyler read Luke 17. So last point, remember Lot's wife. Remember the angel said he couldn't do anything until they arrived safely at in Zoar. So Lot, you can picture this, he crosses into the city limits of Zoar, perhaps past the city gate, and his wife is behind him. And the fire from heaven begins to fall and Lot's wife looks back and maybe she's engulfed by some burning sulfurous cloud and becomes this pillar of salt, perhaps just outside or just inside the city gate. And she's a warning. She's a warning for us. That fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah is a bit of hell on earth. It's a foreshadowing of the future judgment at the return of Christ, the second advent. So Genesis 19, the final dark night in Sodom, Luke 17 tells us that there is going to be one final night for this broken, fallen world. So Luke, Genesis 19, not only points to the first advent, but it gets us ready for the second advent. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of following Jesus will keep it. Her life was too much in Sodom, right? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The fire falls and she can't help but look back because her life was too much bound up there. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. We must deny ourselves, not trying to save our lives or our comfort in this life, but living by grace through faith in Jesus. Anyone wants to come after me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. You lose your life for my sake. In the Gospels, you'll find it. So folks, it, it could get very hard for us. It's already gotten very hard for Many of us, at different times, it might be very hard right now. We're not home yet. Jesus warned elsewhere, because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he's speaking to disciples when he says these things, when he gives these warnings. The Lot's wife's example is so wise and appropriate to profess disciples. She was so close to deliverance. And yet judgment fell. The day of judgment revealed what was in her heart. She was leaving what she loved. To her, it was loss to flee Sodom. She's not the only cautionary tale like this in the Bible. You remember Demas? So at the end of Philemon, Paul wrote that probably around AD 62. He writes this in the, you know, 
concluding words, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Two to three years later, at the end of 2 Timothy, 64, 65 AD, the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul, he writes, Make every effort to come to me soon, Timothy, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So Lot's wife didn't follow God's warning. It would have been life to her. She looked back with longing. She was leaving her home. Her heart was too much there, and it had disastrous results. So Lot's wife became a monument to the cost of not trusting God, not obeying God's warnings. So we also have got to guard our hearts, our loves, our loyalties. We need to remember Lot's wife. So that's the concluding exhortation for us to remember Lot's wife. And we're going to sing now a song that's appropriate. We have a great God who is wonderfully merciful. But this song, we can sing it as a prayer on the heels of this passage the words go like this, some of the words. Occupy my lowly heart, own it all, and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. And then verse 3 says, Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. Oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name in me. Let's pray. Father, you are kind and patient and merciful and gracious, and we thank you that you are our Father, and we can run to you and know your loving arms around us. We are safe with you. You are so kind and merciful and gracious, but we thank you that you're also in that mercy and love and kindness, not afraid to tell us the truth, to give us the hard truths that we need, the warnings. So help us, Lord, to heed the sober cautionary tales and warnings of this passage and remember Lot's wife so that we will not put our hands to the plow and look back, somehow thinking that the land we left is better than the life we have now. Help us to look to you and trust Jesus and follow him with our whole heart. Pray that you would own our hearts, that we would have no other gods before you. pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.